Good morning, Central Baptist Church family, and good morning to you two who are joining us um, on our live stream today. Um, we want to thank God for being with us throughout this time and uh, His continued grace in how He sustains and keeps us um, um, in His in His care and in His love. Um, we were hoping, as uh, the president announced that the the lockdown period will be for um, for two weeks, uh, but it has been prolonged and for uh, reasons that are understandable, although yes, the government is inconsistent with some of their decisions that they make, but we do understand that um, it is a precarious time that we find ourselves in, and it is important that we also think about uh, the safety of our members um, and um, the health of our members, um, even as we uh, during this time. But we also thank God that we are able to connect um, using these kinds of uh, means that we have at our disposal, um, that the word of God can still go forth, um, although we do um, really do need uh, to gather together as uh, uh, the family um, of, of believers um, for a time being, we don't see this as some kind of persecution from the government, um, but as a way of protecting um, us. We have been going through different kinds of sermons, um, especially um, since December, um, doing topical sermons. What I want to do today, I want us to start a series in the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi. So we're going to start um, the series for several weeks that are coming. Um, and uh, we're going to look at the book of Malachi as our series uh, that we will begin. Um, this morning, I want to take you to Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. And the question that um, is the topic of today is, is the question that is asked by the Israelites when they say to God, how have you loved us? So the topic today is how God loves us. How God loves us. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1 up until verse 5. Let us take this time and pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, what a joy it is, O oh God, to know that your word continues to speak even in a time that we find ourselves in, Lord, you are not silenced. You continue to speak clearly in your word. Give us the grace, O oh God, to hear you, to obey you, to walk in your ways. Lord, help us to um, love you. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. As I said this morning, our attention is turned to the book of Malachi. It is the last book in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has about 37, uh, 39 books, and the New Testament has 30, 27 books. Um, so uh, in, in our English translations, Malachi is the last uh, book in the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi was the last prophet before the coming of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas. 
Uh, Malachi teaches us how to be faithful to God during troubling times. And I think it is pertinent that we study the book of Malachi, especially in, 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 in a time that we find ourselves in. Malachi taught the Israelites how to be faithful as they waited for the coming of the Messiah. It teaches us how to be faithful as we wait for the return of the Messiah. Please open your Bibles, as I said, to the book of Malachi. Malachi comes to us in the form of six disputations. We will cover the first disputation this morning. It provides the foundation for the other five disputations in the book. Each disputation has a three-part structure. When you look at the structure of this disputation, first of all, you'll notice that they start with a statement about God. Secondly, then they moved on to a question or a questioning by Israel, and they conclude with an answer by God. Listen for this structure as I read the first disputation in the first five verses of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, I read from the ESV. This is God's word. Let us hear him. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is it not Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his, his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this first disputation starts out like the rest with a statement by God to Israel I have loved you uh, this is the foundation of the whole book of Malachi it, it provides the motivation for everything God is calling his people to in the book apparently there's a part there's a park in, in, in Heidelberg, Germany with a beautiful flower bed with a sign written in, 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 in three languages in English it says please do not pick the flowers in German the, sans, the sign says picking of flowers is prohibited but the French sign says those who love flowers will not pick them which sign do you think is the most effective? Love clearly is the most powerful motivations for action. And I wonder if that is not why the first words out of the mouth of God is, I have loved you. His goal through this prophet is to wake his people up and bring them to himself. So he clearly and unashamedly says to them, I have loved you. But Israel questions God's love in verse 2b. They say to, to, to God, how have you loved us? Then God says, answers this question by saying in verse 2c to verse 5. He says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
to divide our time this morning, I, will, I want, to, I want to, to, to first consider Israel's question. Why were they questioning God's love for them? And how does this relate to us? Then I want to consider God's response to this question in verses 2c to verse 5. In these verses, God proves his love for Israel. This will provide the foundation for the rest of the book and it provides the motivation for our love for God as well. Let's start with Israel, Israel's question. They say to, to God, how have you loved us? Why does Israel question God's love? Well, to answer that question, it may be helpful to set the book in its historical context. Uh, Malachi, were, uh, Malachi prophesied in the, in the middle of the 5th century around, um, according to historians, 450 BC. This was after Israel had returned from exile in, in Babylon. It, it, it was after Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied as well. It's most likely around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. You can learn more about the historical situation by reading Ezra and Nehemiah. As um, last year we started, but we haven't finished the, the series on Nehemiah. Um, hopefully at some point we will um, get back into that series. But uh, the, the, the books of Nehemiah and Ezra set um, the context for what is happening here if you want to get more detail. Haggai and Zechariah um, were, were preaching, and their preaching resulted in the temple being built. And temple worship had been restored. But, but God's presence hadn't returned to the temple as they promised. And the Messiah hadn't come as, as, as promised. The, the, the promised restoration seemed to them to be so far off. Judah was a tiny little province enduring discouraging suppression under the Persian Empire. And it didn't appear like it would end anytime soon. They were in great trouble. They were all but slaves to the Persians. So the, so the promises of the prophets all seemed like cruel mockery at this point. That's why they ask God, that's why they say to God, in, in objection to what he has said, how have you loved us? This teaches us that sometimes it doesn't feel like God loves us. Now, love in this context does not mean personal emotion or affection. It, it, it refers to the concept of alliance between two nations through a covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, when he makes a, a, a covenant with, with um, Abraham at that time, Abram, he, he promised to bless them. He promises to, 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 that they, they, they would be a great nation. He promised to prosper them in the land. He promised to protect them from their enemies. That, that, he, 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 that is, he promised to love them. But they weren't feeling very loved at this point. They felt like God had turned away from his covenant promise. They, they, they were not a great nation. They were an unequal province with, with little stability. They weren't prospering in the land. They were experiencing drought and, and poverty. They, were, they, they, they weren't feeling protected from their enemies. 
they, they were occupied by Persians and, and were experiencing opposition from all around. They, they, they say, now, now tell us again, how have you loved us? Israel had all but given up trusting God to do anything for them. They didn't feel that God was being faithful to his covenant with them. But part of that covenant also required Israel to love God. And that is, they, 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 they were called to be obedient to his word. They, they were to be faithful to the covenant. But because they thought God was being unfaithful to them, they were being unfaithful to him. They, they, they had stopped giving him their full devotion and, and worship. We, we, we see this evidence throughout this book of Malachi. In the second disputation, we see that the priesthood had become corrupt in chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 9. In the third disputation, we see that they were intermarrying with pagans and divorcing their spouses in chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. In the fourth disputation, we, we learn that they were not seeking justice in chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 5. And in the fifth disputation, we see that they had stopped tithing in chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. They, they stopped serving God because they didn't feel that God was serving them. In the sixth disputation, Malachi tells Israel, um, tells us that Israel was saying in chapter 3, verse 14 to, 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 to 15, listen to this. They were saying this. They were saying, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of, of walking um, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Israel thought their problems were because God was not faithful to them. He didn't love them. Therefore, they weren't being faithful to him. But so many of Israel's problems were because of their unfaithfulness to God. That's why they they went into exile in the first place. And and, and when God brought them out of exile, their love was still cold. They weren't honoring God with their lives. Before exile... Their abundance enticed them to forget God. They started to see the blessings of God as idols in their lives. And these idols blinded them to forget their devotion to God. Now, after their exile, their difficulties enticed them to forget God. They started to see their difficulties as if it's a reflection of the fact that the Lord does not love them, does not uh, um, um, care for them. And so they forgot God. And so the prophet calls them to return to God and remain faithful to Him. When you think about God, do you ever think, what have you done for me lately? When God seems absent, it's easy to disregard him and his ways. When it seems like the enemy is taking over, it's easy to buy into the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. It's easy to start living like the world when the world is pressing in. We know this is wrong, but it's hard to love God when it doesn't feel like he loves us very much. 
So what should we do when it seems like God is taking a break? We need to be reminded that God does love us. God has remained faithful in the past and He will remain faithful in the future. And He is also faithful in the present, even when it doesn't feel like it. When we remember God's love for us, it motivates us to love Him. So let's turn now to consider God's response to Israel's question. This should show us uh, um, how God loved Israel and how He loves us as well. God sets out to prove his love to Israel by saying to them, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. This verse and the verses that follow teach us two truths about God's love. The, the, the first truth comes from the statement, I have loved Jacob. The second truth comes from the statement, But Esau I hated. First, God's love is seen through his electing grace. We will learn this in the statement, I have loved Jacob. Remember that here, love doesn't refer to personal emotion or affection. It refers to the covenant God had made with Israel. God had chosen Israel as his elect people. He had established a covenant with them. But he hadn't established a covenant with other nations. That's what it means when God says, Esau I have hated. Even though Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac, God chose Jacob to receive the blessings promised to Abraham. That is not to say Esau wanted God's grace and blessing. He sold his birthright for a cup of soup. He forfeited God's blessing to fill his stomach. And it is not to say um, Jacob deserved God's love. Jacob was a liar and a cheat from the beginning. Without God's election of Jacob, he wouldn't have remained lost. God's election of Jacob was based on his grace, not on Jacob's merit. It was not because of anything that Jacob had done. In fact, God chose Jacob before he was even born. Paul comments about this. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11 to 13, listen to what Paul says. Romans chapter 9, verse 11 to 13, speaking about God choosing Jacob. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told... The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, God's election is based on his grace, not on our works. And that is seen in his election of Israel. Um, We see this again in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 10, I love this passage. Uh, Why did God choose Israel? Why did God, was it because Israel was a a military powerhouse? Was it because it had its uh, uh, politics in place? What was it? Was it because Israel was attractive, was a big nation? But we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 10, that that was not the case. Look at what, what the word says. Moses says to them, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. 
it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he saw to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to those generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. His God's love for Israel was based entirely on his grace, not their works, not who they are, but who God is. And God's love for us is also based on his sovereign grace, not our works. And this is seen in the election of all those who are in Christ. When you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, Paul breaks out in, in, in praise, contemplating the riches believers have in Christ. This is what he says. He says, blessed, the, the, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed is in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved god's love in other words, is grounded in his unconditional election of his people. It is based on grace, not works. And yet his grace is the basis of our works. And I want you to think about this carefully and, and listen to this carefully. His grace is the basis of our works. Our love for God is not the basis of God's love for us. But God's love for us is the basis of our love for God. In other words, this means that if God had not loved us first, we would not have the ability to love him. If grace has not transformed us, we would not have the ability to do the works that are pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, it is God's love that motivates us and gives us the base of our love for Him. And I might say, and I must say this as well, our love for one another. Deuteronomy and Ephesians both draw this point out. In Deuteronomy, we learn that God is faithful and keeps His covenant and steadfast love. Therefore, Israel is called to love him and keep his commandments, even when things are hard. In Ephesians, we learn that God chose us for a purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption for a reason, to the praise of his glorious grace. We were saved by grace. We were saved for good works. God had been faithful in the past to Israel, even though they did not deserve it. 
this proved his love. This reminder was intended to motivate them to be faithful to him. And God's electing love for us in the past is the foundation of our love for him in the present. But God also promised to love and be faithful to Israel in the future. And he promises to be faithful to us in the future. This too should motivate us to be faithful to him in the present. And that brings me to the second thing we learn about God's love. Right? God's love is seen in his just judgment. This is drawn out of the statement, but Esau I have hated. Again, we remember that love and hate don't refer to God's affection in this context. They refer to his covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. He didn't make one with Edom. The, the nation that came from Esau's descent. And that's what it means when it says, Esau have hated. Edom, Edom um, Esau's uh, uh, um, posterity, was Israel's arch enemy. They were never allies. They were always in a hostile relationship. In fact, when Judah was under attack at the hands of the Babylonians, the Edomites assisted Babylon in capturing the Jews. The Edomites were certainly the enemies of God and his people. But Edom is not just a nation that opposes God and his people. Edom represents all nations that oppose God and his people. Edom represents the offspring of Satan who is always nipping at the heel of God's elect people. From the beginning, God has promised that he would crush the offspring of Satan. Remember that, 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 that promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God has promised that those who curse his people will be cursed. Esau was the offspring of Satan and God promised that he would crush Edom. Almost every prophet spoke of the eventual judgment of Edom here. You think about Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 35. You think about Hosea in Hosea chapter 13. Jewel in Jewel chapter 3 verse 19 and Obadiah. They, they spoke about the eventual judgment of Edom. Malachi is doing the same here. In verses 4, in verses 3, chapter 1 of Malachi, verse 3b and verse 4, this is what he says. He says, I have laid waste of his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom God is angry forever. In a time when God's people were being oppressed by their enemies, this promise would have been reassuring. God was vowing to keep his promises to defeat their enemies. They, they wouldn't be oppressed forever. In the first instance, he is promising to literally destroy Edom. But as Edom represents all the enemies of God and his people, God is also promising to destroy all of their enemies. This is proof of God's love for people. And the point is to reassure Israel of God's love. By the time Malachi was prophesying, the Edomites had 
already been severely crippled. During the 6th century, the Edomites had been driven out of their land by the Nabataean Arabs and had settled in the land just south of Judah, which later became the country of Eudemia. But by, by, by the 4th century, the Nabataeans um, had complete control of the land where the Edomites were living. But the Edomites still had an identified, identifiable population in Malachi's day. They, they could have risen to power again. They, they could have been a threat to Judah. But God assures Israel that Edom had no hope of rebuilding their empire. Their fate was sealed forever. And their demons would serve as a reminder of God's judgment against all nations who oppose him and his people. In the same way that God desires to be glorified through his electing grace, he will also be glorified in the final defeat of Satan and his offspring. He will be glorified through the salvation of his people and through the judgment of his enemies. That's what Malachi means in verse 5 here. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Not only is God great in his love toward Israel, he is great in his judgment of the nations outside Israel. Now it is true that all the nations will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. And through Christ, this is made a reality. The gospel is now for the nations. And when Christ returns, we see that people from every tribe and nation will praise God. When you look at Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7. That's why God is holding off on bringing judgment now. But God will one day be glorified through his judgment of the nations. Anyone who does not believe the gospel and bow the knee to Christ will experience God's eternal wrath. And the New Testament presents this truth as a reassuring truth to God's people who suffer under the persecution of the world, who, who suffer under the trials and tribulation we experience, the pains, the griefs that we go through. And the New Testament presents this truth as a motivation for the church to be faithful to Him till the end. The, the book of Revelation points to the coming of judgment of Christ on all the enemies of God. And it's interesting here that the enemies of God are described as those who aren't elect. In Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, the Bible says of the, to those who worship the beast, they are everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. These people will eventually be cast into the lake of fire. But until that happens, God's people will suffer under persecution. The, the promise of judgment is intended to encourage the church to endure suffering and to stay faithful to the Lord until he returns. That's why Revelation chapter 13 verse 10 goes on to say, here is a call for, in, for the endurance and faith of the saints. We see similar, uh, uh, something similar in, in, in Second Peter. In, in chapter 3 of Second Peter, Peter speaks of the judgment that is coming on those who oppose God. Then he says to the elect, 
in, in verse 11 and, and verse 12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of, of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Their faithfulness is one way they can they, they, they make their calling and election sure. When we think of the love of God, we don't generally think of election and judgment. In fact, for some people, these doctrines might not seem very loving at all. But in Malachi chapter 1, God says, I have loved you. And the way he proves his love is by referring to the election of his people by his sovereign grace and the judgment of his enemies. His faithfulness in the past through election and his faithfulness in the future to bring judgment on our enemies are things that prove his love for us. From beginning to end, God loves us. And these reminders are intended to strengthen us to, to love him now in difficult times. If you're a believer here today, if you're a believer and you're listening, have you begun to question God's love? Because of all that's going wrong in the world or all that's going wrong in your life? You see, God does not promise easy times. When, when uh, Christianity, and I must say this, and because a lot of people, a lot of so-called preachers deceive uh, people today. They dangle the the promise of an easy life for people to become Christians. And when people come to Christ, they experience the opposite. You see, Christianity is not a bed of roses. In this world, we will suffer persecution. God does not promise an easy, and does not promise easy times now. In fact, He promises persecution. But His love for you was established before the foundation of the world. And his love for you will be finally proved when he judges the world and delivers you from all his enemies. This should motivate you. Return to God and he will return to you. Remain faithful to him now and he will remain faithful to you. If you're not a believer and you're listening to this, there's good news for you this morning. God's judgment is coming on all who do not trust him. But if you will believe that Jesus, the only son, the only son of God, died for your sins and was raised from the dead, you can be saved. If you trust him alone for salvation, you can flee from the wrath that is to come. You can become an adopted son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords this morning. You can come to know the love of God through the blood of the eternal covenant. Turn from your sin and turn to God in faith. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord and God, thank you for such a reassurance that you have loved us and love that motivates us to love you a love that reminds us of your sovereign grace in electing us making us your own a love that 
reminds us that if it was not for this love, we could not have chosen you. We could not have loved you. But you gave us new life for eyes to be opened, to see your truth. And for this, Lord, we want to be grateful to you. We pray that you help us to truly be faithful. We want to pray as well for those who do not know you, Lord. Those who have not given themselves over to you. We pray that you will convict them, O God. You will show them the greatness of your love displayed ultimately in your Son on the cross. That as they see this, O God, they will come to a greater appreciation of what you've done and surrender their lives to you. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.